Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, founders, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Richard Potter, CEO and co-founder of Peak, an AI platform that's raised $118 million in funding. Richard, thanks for chatting with me today. Thanks for having me, Brett. Not a problem. So you founded Peak in 2016 as an AI company. So you were in AI way before it was cool. So talk to us about what you saw in the market in 2016 and what led to you founding the company. Yeah, well, it's been a hell of a ride. And now, obviously, everything in AI is exploding, isn't it, in a good way? Uh, so... Back then, it was an interesting one. We The mission of Peak is very much to help other businesses perform better using data and artificial intelligence. And that has been, the, that was the founding mission and remains the mission to this day. You know, as we started to work with more and more customers, we realized that it was the machine learning and AI components of what the Peak platform did that made the biggest difference to our customers' business performance. Yeah, so from very early on, we've been predominantly an AI company and focused and built an AI platform. Yeah, like you say, before everyone knew they wanted one, but it, it felt to us always a very natural extrapolation of if businesses that run on data perform better, what's the next frontier of that and how are companies going to optimize exactly how they run their business, like the entire operation and not just peripheral sort of components of how they run their business, but right at the heart of how do their organizations function. It always felt to us like artificial intelligence was going to be the next big thing. And fortunately, I think we are being proven correct. What were those early years like? Did you have a lot of people who just couldn't understand the vision and, and couldn't see the vision? Well, it was it's fascinating, actually. So many could, but lots couldn't. And the sales pitch that we had to make often started with educating people like, you know, look at these companies like Uber or Facebook or Google who have all created and or changed categories and seemingly overnight. And they are not doing that, you know, just as regular companies. You think of them as tech companies, but at the heart of their offering is artificial intelligence, huge data processing capabilities and, and AI. And that's the reason these businesses can function. And that is going to come mainstream. That is going to come to every company. And that's what we exist to do. We exist to help you guys make that leap from today's business to the AI-enabled business of the future. Now, many people got that. Lots of people were very skeptical. And interestingly, lots of people also just couldn't comprehend how it was possible because in 2016-17, the data maturity of your average enterprise was just not there either. So even if people got it, lots of people just didn't think the landability was there. So it was just so wide and so broad. But you did have a lot of people who got it straight away, but also maybe expected too much. So a lot of people who thought that like, yes, I get it. And I can see how this is going to change my business. Let's build an AI. Let's just get the AI to do all these things. And you did also have to wind some people back from thinking that there was a silver bullet and AI could do absolutely everything uh, where in reality it can't and couldn't. So yes, there was lots of different reactions to those early sales pitches, should we say. It sounds like those were certainly early adopters. One thing that I've found with early adopters is they can be very hard to identify and, and find. But once you find them, things are obviously great. How did you find those early adopters? 
Yeah, interesting. I mean, you just had to have loads of conversations. I mean, I remember the first couple of years from a sales effort perspective, we had someone running our sales team that I worked very closely with. The two of us were on the road pretty much constantly speaking to as many people as possible. We figured that any conversation was a good conversation because we needed to push the agenda and we needed to get our own brand better known and just keep having conversations. And eventually those early adopters bubble to the top. Now, what I would say is that, you know, building a company around early adopters and building a company like we are now around mainstream adopters is very, very different. And Jeffrey Moore's crossing the chasm is something that I think we've acutely experienced and felt. And like, you know, those mainstream buyers are looking for and want something very different to those early adopters. But going back to your original question, you know, when you found them, sales could happen seemingly overnight, but it was a bit like panning for gold in the early days. Now it's uh, very different to that. Can you expand on how that's different exactly and maybe talk us through the pitch of what it was like for the early adopters and what it's like now for mainstream adopters? Yeah, well, often a sales meeting would just be just full of excitement, right? Like nobody expected to have someone turn up at their office and say, reimagine how you run your business. What, how does it function today? If you could know these things about the future, what would it mean? Could you reimagine this? And those early adopters are very optimistic, very far-sighted, and like they really get excited by conversations like that. So you might be straight on a whiteboard. I remember being straight on the, introduced to CEO of one of our now still customers being straight on a whiteboard and it just sort of blowing his mind. He was like, well, if we could predict that one thing, that completely re-engineers how my entire business works. And uh, we drew up a future operating model for his business there and then, and by the end of the week, we had a contract in place. That, you know, is very different today because people are in the market looking for these things more actively and they're comparing you to alternatives. And so basically when you're selling, and as Jeffrey Moore would say, when a technology crosses the chasm, those mainstream buyers want more certainty of outcome. They're less willing to take a risk. They're going to compare you more to alternatives. They're going to shop around. They want everything. They want the customer references. They want the demos. They want everything. And that's why it's different. When the thing that that means for a business like us is we have to operate differently as a sales and marketing team and as a business. We have to meet our customers where they want to be met, which means you know rounding absolutely everything out in our go-to-market, our sales, our marketing, our you know account management teams. Everything has to be different, more robust, and just I guess that is scaling. And, and we always knew that would happen, and and it's great that we're in this position because it means the category is taking off, right? How would you summarize your go-to-market philosophy and just your marketing philosophy in general? Yeah, well, I peaks I would summarize as we are enterprise sales. We are selling to not necessarily like the G2K or the biggest companies in the world. About 25% of our revenues are enterprise and 75% is sort of mid-market, upper mid-market companies. We're trying to democratize AI for all those businesses. The ones who can't build themselves need a platform and a, a like peak to help harness the power of AI. But what that means is not long deal cycles, but it's consultative. It's getting to know the customer's business. It's making sure that the solutions of the software we offer does answer the opportunities that they see and that there's a good fit. So it's all of those things. It's relatively high touch. But then again, we're also blessed by the fact that our implementation cycles and the way we build our software are relatively short, which I think then encourages our customers to sign up quite quick. So our deal cycles on average are four to five months end to end, which is short actually for enterprise software sales, particularly for the ACVs that, that we're selling out. So that's you know, that's our philosophy. That's how we do things. And then there's a few, there's a few things behind that, which I'm happy to unpack as to why we've made certain decisions, but certainly that's how we approach our go-to-market. 
let's unpack it. Yeah, okay. Well, <laughs> I think one thing I believe in is, you know, is value selling. I think that, you know, core belief that I sell it to our team a lot is if we create value for our customers, good things will happen to us, you know, as a business, as people, et cetera. And that's a philosophy we stick to. Well, the way that reflects in our go-to-market very much is we're not selling on price. We're not positioning as a commodity. We're not even positioning really as an alternative. We're positioning as the future. We're positioning as the opportunity. We are positioning as the way for our customers to get from a current way of doing things to a new world, which they believe is the right one, the more optimal one, the more sustainable one, and an exciting one. And we position very much around the value that you will create by working with Peak and running our software. In doing so, that anchors everything around value. And our culture is based around value, but our customer engagements are based around value for better or worse. So we will be judged by, does our software create that value for our customers? Yes or no. Will they renew their contracts? They will make that decision based on the value we create. And we're happy for that to be the case. But then that has a few knock-on effects, okay? So we have relatively high ACVs, we have good margins, we have strong retention rates and expansion and, and so on and so forth. But we live by this core philosophy, you know, the more value we create, the better things get for us. And that is our sole, that is, that is our sole purpose. That is the mission of our business. And if we just zoom out a little bit and talk about AI in general. I know you had a report, uh, I think it was a year ago on the state of AI. Can you just talk to us a little bit about the state of AI? Yeah. Well, the thing that I reflect on now is uh, the timing of that report. Kind of, we published it just before uh, the generative AI explosion and the launch of uh, ChatGPT. We sort of published it in uh, fall, autumn of last year. And the purpose behind it was to really see, like, relatively speaking across the world, where are companies on this adoption curve? You know, are businesses doing something or are they just picking the tires? Are they playing around? Are they making money? And it highlights some really interesting things. You know, we operate in three main geos. We have a growing business in North America. As you can tell from my accent, we're founded in England and we're a British business. And this is our first, like, this is our home territory, the UK. But then also India. We have a big team in India. We do most of our engineering in India. and We also sell in India. We have a big growing customer base there too. So we were trying to compare these global trends and it highlights some really interesting stuff to us, including the fact that Indian businesses were more advanced and more sort of, let's just say, willing to try out AI technologies than businesses in the US and the UK, although the US wasn't too far behind India and the UK was kind of a bit of a distant third there. But that's why we did that. Now I would say like, you know, if we did the same thing again today, if we redid that survey, it would be completely different because we have another technology really in our armory in generative AI and making use of that in our businesses is, is fantastic and gives us a huge incremental opportunity to what we even saw as practically achievable 12 to 18 months ago. So yeah, I think if we, I think if we redid that, we would see some very different results. Something I've heard from other AI founders is they say that you know, there's uh, the company can kind of be divided into two big chapters. So it was pre-ChatGPT and then post-ChatGPT in November 2022, when it was finally released into the mainstream, I should say. But what they've told me is that in the first chapter, it was all about trying to educate the market and trying to create demand. And there was a battle to do that. And then after ChatGPT came out, it was all about trying to capture all of that customer demand. And it's a battle to now capture that demand. Is that something that you've seen as well? Loosely speaking, yeah, absolutely. There's a huge, there's been a huge change. I would say that it depends maybe on your category and your type of product. 
So I think post chat GPT, there was a huge pressure then immediately on, I mean, the roadmaps in tech got kind of ripped up overnight. You know, we were putting, or well, lots of businesses were putting R&D budgets behind building this sort of capability into their products. And those pure AI companies, those businesses that already were AI companies were thinking, how does it affect my roadmap and what should I change and so on and so forth. And there was a fair amount of customer pull. I've heard some businesses say there was a lot more internal than external pull for change, actually. Until the mid part of this year, I think we're really starting to see, you know, spending on software come back. We've been going through obviously a really painful tech recession or tech downturn from April, May last year, all the way through this year. And not only have the public markets started to turn in this quarter and so on, but I, th I think that companies are starting to spend a little bit more too. And if you're an AI company like we are, you know, we're really seeing very strong demand right now. Um, so I, I would say it didn't happen like overnight. It didn't feel like that. It felt like the world changed overnight. And then we had to just think about things and do things differently. But certainly right now in the market, you know, me and you know, like, as in us and our peers are definitely seeing um, really strong pull from customers, which is, which is cool. And we don't have to do all that market education. We do have to do some education though, explaining now, these are the types of AI, this is what it can do. These are the different ways you use it. These are the applications you can achieve, which is really where the conversation is right now. Vis-a-vis -vis, you need AI. Everyone gets that. When we look at your total addressable market, what percentage of them do you think have at least heard of Peak and, and know you exist? <laughs> Amazing question. I would love to think it would be almost all of them. Uh, the reality is probably a lot less than that because we are still relatively, I mean, we're, we're a growth stage SaaS business, so we're not small in that sense, but we are, you know, relatively small fish in the whole enterprise software market still, because this is a new category and an emerging one. We see, you know, because you talked about this, we see our total addressable market as all businesses certainly of a certain scale, but we focus, if you, if you, if you think about the total universe of companies, say a couple of hundred million dollars of turnover and up, we use that as a bit of a benchmark because those companies are at scale, they have established processes, they have data, They've landed technology projects before, and they are a good candidate for transformation around artificial intelligence and data. So if we look at the, the universe of those companies and up, there are tens of thousands of those in the world, or hundreds of thousands of those in the world. If we look at the territories we play in, there's tens of thousands. And if we look at the verticals that we play in, there's still tens of thousands of those businesses. Our proposition, Peak's unique proposition, is that we're for all of those businesses. We're not just for the companies that can self-build and have the data science teams, the machine learning teams, the and also the, the product skill and the technology capability to build on a bunch of different technologies to create their own platform and, and roll out their own applications. Peak is the turnkey solution where the platform that those businesses that don't have those products run on, which makes our TAM in our minds massive. Then coming back to your question, I mean, I would imagine, I'd love to say it was 10, 15, 20, even 50%, but I imagine we're talking, you know, at best 1% of those companies right now is aware of Peak. And that is our opportunity as this technology goes mainstream to get out there and for people to find us and want to work with us. What about in those early days? How did you solve the top of funnel awareness problem? And from my conversations with other founders, they say that's something that they've all struggled with as well as in the first one, two, three years, just trying to make sure that people even know that you're out there generally know what you do. How did you overcome that in those early days? What did you do to increase top of funnel awareness? So we took a strategy, which was actually, I've mentioned chasm theory already today, so I'm gonna, but I'm going to do it again. Born a little bit of that thinking, which is, okay, in order to be better known, what we need to do is find a category that 
and I mean a market category, not a sort of product category, a market category or a vertical where we are, that in it itself is basically small enough to win, but big enough to matter. And for us, because we're a British company, that was UK, it was fashion and it was retail. And we felt that like, if we could win enough of a presence there, that would create a sort of gravitational pull around peak in so much as we would become very well known in our domestic market. And because of the nature of that business, you know, fashion brands, retailers are well known by companies in other verticals that would attract people to want to come and work with us. And that works really, really well. So we ended up expanding out of retail into general consumer goods, wholesale, and then eventually even into logistics, manufacturing, where we have a big customer base now and, and a few other sectors. So we've sort of approached it sort of narrow segment by segment and believed that if there was, yeah, like these categories of these smaller spaces where we can play and we can win, then we're going to attract sort of stronger gravitational pull around peak. That worked really well. I think that was a, a really smart strategic decision. And I actually for your listeners who would be interested in this, when we sat down and devised that strategy, we were chatting to an external consultant and they said, what's the highest ACV customer you've got right now? Or, you know, or what is your average contract value? One of the two, or probably both questions actually. And I think at the time our ACV was maybe $40,000 and our largest customer was just not that much bigger than that. And they said, right, imagine a world where your biggest customer is a million dollars a year and like can you imagine that world what would you do for them and so on and that kind of like blew my mind i could not imagine a company paying that to us as a subscription so it took a while to get that out of me and the other the others that were in the workshop and eventually it led us down this path okay well maybe we can see a path to having a customer like that if we do the thing i just said you know find a category that's small enough to dominate but big enough to matter and we set about that path. And now today we have several customers that are around a million dollars ACV. And I, when I look at that, it kind of still blows my mind that that's possible. And I think back to that day and that decision that we made. What was your line there? Small enough to dominate, big enough to matter? Yeah. That's going to be the highlight of the episode. That's an awesome line. <laughs> cool. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. How do you think about your market category then when it comes to like the terminology used? Like what is that market category? Well, I think that now that AI has gone very mainstream, we're now in that world where maybe like MarTech solutions were, to be frank, over the last five years, where there's a lot of choice and, and confusion, actually, almost by, too much choice, which creates by a confusion, which stops people, you know, affirmatively choosing a good path or any path, actually. And what I mean by that is you introduced us as an AI platform. And I think that, you know, I've seen a lot of businesses position themselves as an AI platform when they are what I would believe is an AI platform. They might be actually a, let's just say a telephony solution, for example, and they have AI components in there. There are other enterprise software companies that are falling foul of this, almost like over-indexing on AI when really that they call there's something else. And they do have some machine learning features, but that doesn't make them an AI platform. So I think it's incumbent on us as tech companies to help our customers understand through our own positioning, 
are we the right company for you? So I would describe Peak as an AI applications platform these days, because what do you get on the Peak platform? Well, you have all of the technical capability to build, deploy, maintain business applications that at the heart, they are AI applications on our platform. But we also have a number of different application suites that are geared around delivering certain business outcomes, whether that's like optimizing your inventory position, if you're a, a retailer or a manufacturer, if you're optimizing your pricing, so you're maximizing margin or your customer personalization or your sales efforts, all of those things. These are like really high business value applications that we can run if we want to transform it into an AI enterprise. But if you look at our website, you know, above the fold, right on the homepage, we clearly position as, you know, the AI platform for companies selling millions to billions in product revenues who are looking to manage their or optimize their inventory, their pricing and their customer personalization and sales. Now that helps people opt in or it helps them opt out and understand if they're the right size, fit, et cetera, for us. And if the outcomes that we offer are interesting, I think that we're still going to be in this zone though for quite a long time where too many people are just saying they're an AI company and some will be and some won't be. Some will be somewhere in between a software company with some AI features. But if we all say we're AI platform companies, then that's going to confuse the market. So that's going to take a bit of piecing together. And I also think it's going to take a while for like IT landscapes to settle and for us to understand like what are the key components that other businesses need in order to run themselves using AI. I believe the AI application platform is a key one and there'll be a few others. And then we'll see how it shakes out over the next few years. You mentioned the website there. Can you take us behind the scenes of what happens when you make a big update like that to the the homepage and, and to your messaging? Is that something that you're deeply involved in and working with the marketing team or what's going on behind the scenes before a big rollout like that happens? Yeah, well, that's a great one. You know, I'd love to tell you that in a way that it will be like applicable to all. I think it's very different depending on who you are, what your core skills are. I'm quite a commercial founder. I mean, I have been a data analyst and worked as an analyst uh, for many years. And so, you know, I am very closely aligned to the product and what we do for our customers, but my leaning is very much more commercial. So in our case, then I am quite involved in that because, and this is the tricky thing, I think, for a scaling business, you are scaling to a point at which hopefully where you, you've won the category that you saw was emerging, you had a vision for, and then you built a company to address that need. And then you executed on that. It's really exciting for us that we're a long way down that path now. We've not made it. You know, I don't feel like we've won yet, but we're on that journey, you know. But in that case, I don't think you can delegate these kinds of decisions. You have to intimately understand where the market is today, where your product is today, who you're going after, why why you are positioning and targeting those companies today, knowing that you might change slightly in the future if you're proven right today. And it requires customer feedback, team feedback, lots of thought. Obviously, the way in which I would say you should do it is your product marketing team should lead that effort. They should run that project. But absolutely, if you're a, you know, a business at our stage, the founders need to be very closely aligned to that because this is all about like, you know, an initial vision that we had and we're trying to get somewhere and we're partway along that. So there's a lot more stakeholders than when you're pitching a seed funding deck and you've got no customers and you can say what you want. Now there's much more substance to it. But still, we have to be building for that vision and we know where the product can go and we know where the market's going to go. Well, we hope we know where the market's going to go. and We believe we know what our customers want, but we're not the only voices in the room. So the way in which we approached it was exactly that. Our product marketing team ran the program. We used various different frameworks. It took you know a while and we changed and we 
tweak and we iterate continuously anyway, because this market isn't standing still. So that would be my general advice, run it from somewhere, but definitely stay close as the founders with the ones with the vision are absolutely key to this process. When it comes to the marketing team, how big is the marketing team? And, and what have you learned about building marketing teams so far? And the reason I ask for my conversations with founders, that's one of those points that they really struggle with. And one of those areas that they're really struggling with is building out that marketing team and getting that marketing machine running. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that there's a lot of reasons why people, it's a common thing that I see it across a lot of other startups and we've experienced it too. I think you go through waves of needing different types of marketing teams. So, you know, initially, what you need is sort of jack of all trades, marketeer, we need to stand a website up, we need to build this, we need to build that, we need some branding, we need, you know, we need to run some campaigns. But you're very much like early stage, you just need great energy and some skill and some help. And, and, and it's that kind of best endeavors almost when you're that initial startup, you know, and, and I think that possibly varies by your core motion, but certainly is probably a, you know, an overall heuristic that's true. But well, you move into a world when you start scaling where you need to be great at lots of different things in marketing. So I, when we've gone from that sort of generalist function to a more specialist function, our first iteration of that works very well. It was sort of lightweight. We had good alignment between sales, founders, marketing, product, et cetera. But you're not expecting marketing to drive much because you know, it's there to take the input from a lot of people and distill it and help communicate it. But in our case, isn't going to be the engine yet, the demand engine. Now we're at a place where we're scaling quite quickly and we're at a certain size. The marketing really has to become a big part of the engine room of our go-to market. And that's required another iteration again. And the challenge I think that founders have or, or, or CEOs have when they're looking at that is how do you know when you're going from one stage to another? You maybe just feel it. You need, you feel there's a need for change, but you can't identify why. Often CEOs are marketers and that's usually, that's problem number one. So we've not been CMOs. We don't understand the world brilliantly and we need to. So that's one problem. The second is there's two sides to marketing. You know, there's the right brain and the left brain, and they're both very important in my mind. Demand generation is a bit of a science in so much as it's a numbers game. We need to run DG processes and track things and track the numbers and understand if things are working. And that requires a certain mindset. But at the same time, if you don't have the other side, if you don't have the creativity, then you're not going to sell and market your product well. And those two things are completely symbiotic. And most marketing leaders lean to the creative or the sort of growth side, in a sense, like one way or the other naturally. And then they need to build a team that covers the other side. So it's hugely complex. And then the third thing that I would say is if you are a technical product, which we are, although we position very much as business outcomes and value, you know, getting the technical truth into your marketing is absolutely crucial. Otherwise, it's just going to be happy, noisy, fluffy, lovely, like, which is nice. Most startups are potentially some of those things, but there has to be some substance to it, especially as you're scaling, because, you know, you have to really connect with the buyers. And I think those three big those are the three biggies that, that mean that is a persistent problem for founders. I agree with you. How we've got through that is obviously, you know, just you've got to stay close to it as a CEO. You've got to stay close. You've got to understand, is it performing? If not, why not? And some of those things might be because of marketing. Many of those things won't be. They might be because of the connection from marketing to product to sales and so on. So it's continuous and it evolves and yeah, it just doesn't stand still. So I'm not surprised that you, uh, that you run into that one a lot, Brett. 
as we look to the new year, what's top of mind? What are your top priorities and what's keeping you up at night? Yeah, I mean, top of mind right now, after what has felt like a, you know, a seismic year really in tech is the optimism going into next year. I mean, like I say, we are seeing strong demand and we're growing well. So I feel like for us, at least touch wood, we're starting to see some light there at the end of the tunnel, i.e. we feel like at least peak and our category is coming out of the other side of this tech downturn. So that's exciting. That is very much top of mind for me and the team. How do we take advantage of that? Now we've weathered the storm, it's time to emerge from that and really press home our advantage that we think we have. So that's that's the exciting thing. And that's what we're looking forward to, you know, and I don't think there's anything keeping me up at night that doesn't normally keep me up at night as a CEO. It's the usual mix of excitement <laughs> mixed with fear, mixed with whatever problem might be top of the intro on any one given day. <laughs> In terms of optimism, it's been wild for me just personally. I've had about 350 conversations this year, I think, with founders on the show and watching the the vibe, so to speak, change from at the start of the year to the end of the year. It seems like we're in a much better place. Founders seem like they're a lot happier and a lot less stressed and worried than they were at the start of the year. So just from these limited number of conversations, it definitely seems like things are uh, headed in the right direction. So we're hopeful for 2024 as well. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, Yeah, it definitely feels like gloom is lifting from the sector for sure. Yeah, definitely feels that way. Let's hope that's, uh, that's true and nothing too crazy happens next year. Now, on the topic of fundraising, you've raised 118 million to date. What have you learned about fundraising throughout this journey? Well, it has been a while since we went fundraising. We raised our Series C in 2021. And, but I think it's, you know, we've got a track record of raising well, raising enough money and giving ourselves an opportunity. And, and I think that the two things that I would, so let's just say, what did we do right? Maybe what would I do differently in the future? The, the things that I think we did right was raise early and often. So I always felt like we weren't running out of cash. We were never in a situation where we were fundraising with our sort of backs up against the wall and we never became desperate. And that's really important. And I think to achieve that, you've got to be continuously talking to investors. And then when you're going in to raise funds, you've got to be very open with them. You've got to have some idea as to who you want to work with. And those relationships can't be cold. You know, you need to have started them ahead of time. So, so that's good. If you don't have that, then I think networking with other CEOs, asking them and getting good intros from other CEOs into investors is a really great way of doing it because that's then not a cold intro. And so for us, that worked really well, particularly in our last round when, you know, we ran that as a tight project. I had about 30 different VCs on the list that we would like to raise from that we considered good fit. And then we, you know, prioritized them and then we you know, got the pitch ready, practiced the pitch, honed the pitch, and then met people and then got the intros. The ones that we didn't know, that I didn't have a pre-established relationship with, we didn't go cold at all. We always looked for a warm intro. So I think raise early, raise often, make sure the bank balance is well topped up. But then if the downturns taught us anything, be tight with your cash still, you know, hold on to it, look after it, run efficiently. So those are the things that we've done. And I think we've done them well. What would I do differently as a learning? One of the things I would do differently, and this I think this is a British thing, you know, you can maybe give me your view. We don't like to overpromise as Brits and we maybe don't shout enough about our own ambitions, achievements or, or whatever, vis-a-vis, um, say, like the American tech culture. 
Okay. So when I was meeting a lot of VCs, particularly for the early funding rounds, I would be pitching the vision for peak the next business. Like, so we are this today, this is the opportunity we see, we're going to be this thing. And it's only really like in the last two years, we've been working on the vision that we always had. And if I look back at some of our pitch decks, they speak to slightly lower ambition early on because I always wanted to go stepping stone by stepping stone and build the business in a credible way and then deliver on the long-term vision when we were in a position to do that. One of the downsides of that approach is that I think we could have sped up our company development by going with the eventual vision sooner, telling the big story right at the start, and then potentially taking a different funding path. I think we could have done more sooner to shortcut maybe one iteration of the peak business. And that's something that I think I think we could have achieved and something that I've learned over time that like if you've got a bold vision, shout about it, talk about it, tell people about it. Whereas that wasn't really my makeup back then and still isn't quite honestly. And so it's uncomfortable, but I think that learning from others and seeing how our companies developed, I think if we had been bolder, earlier, particularly in those financing conversations, we might be um, even further ahead as a company. You raised from SoftBank. Did SoftBank encourage you to really think big and, and have this big picture vision that you're working towards? Yeah, well, I think we felt that they were a great partner for us. Uh, in the world. I don't think I know. We know we felt, you know, they, they were a good partner for us when we raised our Series C. We had several options. I remember you know, we closed that round, we publicized that round in uh, September 21. So we'd closed it in the summer before that. And that was right at the peak of the tech boom, right? So, you know, all sorts of crazy valuations getting paid, lots of excess capital and, you know, seemingly like a unicorn a day being born. So, you know, we were in an era there where we weren't necessarily encouraged by SoftBank. That was the market. We were growing very quickly. We were very ambitious. We had a big vision. And we felt that that mapped what SoftBank offered really well and that we could partner with them and be very successful. And that's the journey we set off on together. Of course, you know, us, SoftBank and the whole tech sector have then had to deal with the sort of rapid or sort of re retrenchment uh, that happened almost overnight in April, May last year. And then going from that, you know, high growth and very growth oriented strategies to efficient growth is essentially like a 180 in how you have to like manage and optimize your business. And that's difficult. That's been really hard. And that's obviously why, you know, <laughs> all the conversations you've had this year with founders, you've seen that change, you know, early in the year, that's all we were worrying about and all we were having to deal with all the way through to the summer probably. And, and it's only since the back end of summer, we've started to feel more optimistic and to feel like the hardest days might be behind us. So yeah, to answer that question again, like I, I'm not sure. I don't think we were encouraged. I think that we found, you know, we see a mutual opportunity and we remain jointly very excited about the opportunity for peak in the AI, uh, in the AI platform space. Final question for you, since I know we're up on time here, let's zoom out three to five years into the future. What's the company going to look like? What's that big picture vision? Well, I would never want to tempt fate after the, you know, pre, uh, <laughs> pre tech crash, we had COVID, didn't we? I and mean, there's always something to, to deal with as technology. It's been a really hard five years, hasn't it? For the sector, for everyone. So let's say three years, like what does the company look like? Success for us at this point would definitely over a three-year period, we should feel like we have called an important category that is real, that there is enough spend in there and that we are of significant size that we feel like we've won that category. What that means is having, you know, continue to build on the strong foundations we're laying uh, as a customer base in North America, in Europe, in Asia. 
And it started to be a prevailing, you know, wisdom that companies need an AI application platform to sit in there alongside their other business systems and their data warehouses and lake houses and that the data stack and knit everything together and help companies run themselves differently. And yeah, I think if in three years time, we felt like we were in that position, then that would be us delivering on our vision. Amazing. Love the vision. And I've really loved this conversation. We are up on time, so we'll have to wrap here. Before we do, if there's any founders that are listening in and they just want to follow along with your journey, where should they go? Hit us up on peak.ai, as simple as that. And then uh, the usual uh, and the usual media outlets. <laughs> awesome. Richard, thank you so much for taking the time. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks, Brett. This episode of Category Visionaries is brought to you by Frontlines Media, Silicon Valley's leading podcast production studio. If you're a B2B founder looking for help launching and growing your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. And for the latest episode, search for Category Visionaries on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode. 